0: I I have uh, <clears throat> I've really enjoyed working with this book. I'm sure all of you have, too. It's also been accomplishing, you know, kind of in a greater goal, I, uh, so many conversations that have been happening since we started working with this book end up with, uh, we'll remember what Sister said, and as Gyanamata said, and it crystallizes a whole lot of experiences on the spiritual path. So I hope all of you are finding the fulfillment of what we hoped for when we started, which was that there would just be a, a deeper um, sense of roadmap of how to, how to live on the spiritual path, and not just a question of individual ideas, but much more uh, a real flow of energy. This week, because we have loyalty and receptivity, devotion and suffering, I had made reference last week to devotion, just thinking, as it turns out, somewhat superficially, that it would seem obvious that devotion would be the real focus, um, but in reading it, partly just because of what's written here, this whole chapter, suffering as a pathway to greatness, I'd never actually read it as seriously as I read it this week, and because at the top the title never attracted me, and then who would it attract? But more than that, I just—I uh, I don't think in terms of suffering. I think in terms of joy, but what she really wrote there is about endurance. And endurance is something that uh, one has to think a great deal about. <coughs> she really wrote about courage and endurance. And um, I, I just think it's brilliantly written. When I look back at my, my notes, I've just basically underlined almost the whole chapter, which is not really useful when it comes to this moment, but uh, <laughs> it's just indicative of the impression it made. But I wanted to start first with the uh, chapter on loyalty and the concept of loyalty. For those of you who um, have ever been in our lay member training group or have had any other reason to read the Ananda rules of conduct, there's a, right at the very beginning, um, there's a whole uh, portion about loyalty which has an enormous amount of energy and so if you're just sort of like trying to learn what Ananda is and you're reading these little rules, all of a sudden there's a big thing about loyalty that just sort of really hits you between the eyes. And you kind of stop for a minute and it, and you think about, you don't quite know what it's about. At least most people don't when they first read it. But as years and years and years go by on the spiritual path and complicated, sophisticated incidents happen of very subtle kinds of delusions that infect your life or affect the lives of others, very many of the, the ideas that are not clear at the beginning gradually become clear. David Gamow used a very Im, uh, interesting image I enjoyed today. He said a lot of things when he first came to Ananda Village about 18 or 19 years ago, whatever it was for him. So he loved lots of it, and lots of things he didn't understand, so he just put them on the shelf. He sort of like, you know op- he was showing us, he opened a cabinet and he put them on the shelf, like that. And then he said, many years later he opened the shelf, opened the cabinet, there was nothing left on the shelf, (laughs) that all of it, which had seemed odd at the beginning, as years of experience went by, your own consciousness changes, your understanding deepens. Sister Gyanamata says in here, in one of her letters to one of the SRF students, if there's any point that you don't understand in the lessons, then just keep coming back to it until gradually as your experience and understanding deepens, then, then it will make sense to you. And I certainly have discovered, and it's, it's a principle that she mentions right in there, and it's a very important one to realize, um, just because you don't understand it now doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's very obvious, but the, but the temptation to judge truth by our present level of consciousness is one that must be steadfastly resisted. And uh, it, it, it has to do with this chapter also about loyalty. Um, Yogananda made the statement that loyalty is the first law of God. And when we talk about the chakras, we talk about steadfastness and determination and the ability to be loyal to truth also is is the true and proper expression of the energy of the first chakra. So there's an esoteric significance to his making that statement that also has to do with as you Uh, build uh, your consciousness up your spine and and integrate yourself through the chakras, the foundation of it all is the ability to be loyal to truth. And um, Sister Gyanamanta talks about it um, in the same way with a few phrases. Those great ones, she says, who have won their palms in bliss, who, beginning on the plane of loyalty to a master, to a teaching and to their fight for self-mastery." And then she says, then went on from there. But she makes that statement, beginning on the, on the plane of loyalty to their teaching and to the process of self-realization. So sometimes we think of loyalty as meaning being loyal to a person or something like that, like you choose some external object and you have to always be loyal to that and then you begin to think, are they worthy of my loyalty and so on. But the kind of loyalty that is the first law of God also, is much more this capacity within us to choose our course of action and not be deterred from it. And that really begins to come come together in the third chapter that we read this time about suffering as a path to greatness, because Gyanamata is not really talking about suffering. She's not talking about being in a state of pain. She's talking about how to endure that which you don't enjoy. And one of the the things that enables us to endure that which we don't enjoy is because we have become steadfast in the practice of loyalty. We're not tempted merely because conditions have changed slightly from those that please us the most to go running away from the commitment we've made and go look for something else. Yogananda himself lamented that of all the characteristics, the fine characteristics that Americans have, loyalty is not really one of the shining characteristics. In fact, one of the characteristics of our culture is great fickleness and and this constant thought that if this doesn't work, I'll just go do something else. As he puts, they change jobs and churches and wives and husbands, you know, just at the drop of a hat. It doesn't please me, I'll just go do something else. And he, he speaks... Um, that it's very difficult to make progress if you don't have it in your mind that when it gets very difficult, I will endure. I will become stronger in my commitment. Instead, we think when it becomes difficult, (coughs) I'll fade back and find another way to do it. Now, of course, and I'm not going to qualify this very many times, but of course, that has to be balanced with common sense. So in all of these statements of Sister Gyanamantas and everything that I make off of this, the assumption is it has to be applied with common sense. If You, you don't want to be loyal to something that's really, really going to kill you and is really not in your best interests, But many times we, we don't get what we could from the spiritual path because we, we, don't, we simply don't have that quality of loyalty. And it's very interesting that she puts a lot of force here in, in being loyal to this teaching at a time when Yogananda was still alive. And you have to always realize that the context in which she was writing was not the context now, but the context when he was there teaching. And people had the actual, personal, direct experience for the most part of his presence. And still she had to remind people. You know, you're never going to get anywhere unless you just take what you're looking at and really stick with it. Now there's another aspect of loyalty that a lot of us really learned um, it became very crystallized to us a couple of years ago when many of you, not all of you, but many of you were here, and we had to endure um, this, the, this horrible persecution through this lawsuit that we went through, and this great sort of cloud of, of accusation and, and uh, this huge false picture of the life that we were leading, which took place in the courts and took place in the newspapers, Uh, For for months, we'd wake up every morning and we'd read about ourselves, unrecognizably so, but nonetheless it was our names and often pictures of our building and various other things related here. And we would read these descriptions, these really astonishing descriptions of the life that we were supposed to be living. But they were also um, written in such a way that they would sometimes, for many people, um, call forth testimony or so-called facts that many people had no direct experience about. Someone such as myself and many of of others of us who were exceedingly knowledgeable about Ananda on a long-term basis. And uh, for those of you who weren't aware, and I don't want to go into details, but it was like a family feud. So the the opposition to Ananda came from people who'd been part of our family. So it's sort of like if a sister-in-law divorces your brother and wants to get back at the family, And so she takes the events that she knows about that took place in the family, and so she has facts like that and can speak with authority because she was there, and yet distorts them to such an extent that they're no longer reality. I mean, you can imagine how that could happen. But if you've been part of the family, you could say, well, I know what she's talking about, but it really didn't happen like that. But what happened for other people, I began to observe, was the same test that the disciples of Jesus had at the end of Jesus's life. Now let me explain it this way, because Jesus at the end of his life knew that he was going to die in a, in, a, in a frightening and unexpected way. Instead of rising triumphant as he came in on Palm Sunday, you know, praised by the multitudes, he, they thought he was going to take over the city of Jerusalem. Instead, within a week, he was crucified. He was not merely dead, but he'd been, you know, tortured and humiliated and All the disciples didn't know if they would be next. It was a terrible experience. And Jesus knew that he had to begin to weed out those who didn't have the strength to go through that experience. He needed to have a very strong core of people who could carry forward his work. Uh, Kriyananda said that at the end of Yogananda's life, he made things very difficult for everyone, too. He was trying to just sort of get rid of all the chaff so that just the wheat would be there to carry it on so when so jesus started saying things like the one that's reported in the bible the most is he started saying eat my body and drink my blood now now we can we have the authority of the catholic church to know that he really meant to sip the wine and break the wafer and so we're all real comfortable with it oh yeah eat my body drink my blood we know what this means but at the time jesus was just a young man a rabbi uh, somewhat controversial, at, at odds with the establishment. And, and everything had been going just fine. They'd been having a really great time together. And he starts giving what everybody patently thinks is a very weird teaching. And, and it must have been very weird, because in the Bible it says, and the Bible is very you know, uh, con- uh, condensed. He tells them to eat my body and drink my blood. The disciples said one to another, this is a very hard teaching You know, suddenly we're being asked to do something that we don't even know what it means or why he would ask it and there are all kinds of other implications to it. And then it says, from this point, many walked with him no more. In other words, they'd been with him until a challenge came to them that they couldn't really tuck into their little rational construction. They kind of consulted with each other. I think he's crazy. You think he's crazy? We both think he's crazy. Let's go. You know. And so they all walked away. You have to put it. It's very human. It you know really happened to real people. People not so different than you. And you have to ask yourself, well, what would I have done? So Jesus himself, who you know is watching this, and and because he was incarnated in a human body and a real human experience, it might have hurt his feelings a little bit. That some of the not hurt his feelings, but hurt his heart, to see people so unable to. Transcend such a a, a small challenge. So he turned to Peter and he said, Peter, will you also leave me? You know, like, how are you doing with this, my friend? And Peter's answer was so perfect. Peter said, where could I go? And many of you have heard me talk about this because I love this story. Peter said, where could I go? Now, that was like such an utterly honest answer. Because Peter didn't say, "Oh, I get it, Lord. I know you're setting up a whole ritual that's going to go on, you know, for hundreds of years, and this is going to, you know, we'll see in the future." Or this is—he didn't know. He didn't say anything. He said, "I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm as confused as everyone else, but I belong to you. There's no place in the world for me but with you. Where could I go? How could I separate myself from that which is myself?" Now, Swami's interpretation of that. Cuts right to the issue of loyalty because what Swami said about that was the real test for people was not the teaching is weird, you have to understand it. These people had had profound, meaningful, deep, intuitive, transcendental experiences with Christ. Did they trust themselves? Not did they have faith in Jesus, but did they have faith in what they had actually experienced? And could they stand strong in their own faith, in their own experience, in the face of external challenge to that? And when we went through our little um, purgatory here, and people could read in the paper something that bore no relationship to what they themselves experienced, the question was, do I panic in light of what someone else said? And Sister Gyanamata really um, answers that so interestingly here in the same letter when that man writes, Clarence Darrow wrote, wrote me this letter. I read in the newspaper that a Swami said. And Sister Gyanamata says, you have experienced the truth of this teaching. What are you saying? And it comes under the chapter on loyalty, which is, can you be loyal even to your own perceptions? It's not just that, oh, I believe in him. It's that I have perceived it. Do I have the strength of character not to become uh, uh, fickle even to myself because loyalty is primarily to one's own experience. And it's, just, it's a very, very important principle that, that at some point we have to say, I know. And if I know, then where else can I go? And so things may happen that I don't quite understand. I will say it only once more. Of course it has to be plied with common sense but applied with common sense. If things happen that I don't understand, but nothing fundamentally contradicts the inner experience I'm having, we have to be able to hang on with that. And in the last chapter when Sister Gyanamata talks about, you know, the darkness comes, there's no consolation, years of disappointment, this is really no fun, I really want to quit. What we're loyal to is not anything outside ourselves, I mean, yes, we're loyal to our friends, perhaps, and to our guru and to our teacher, but what we're really loyal to is our own experience. And we don't run away from that. We, we, we hang in with courage to the, the satisfaction of dharma and, and the faith that we have built up that because of our experience, that this teaching really works. Now, you can't have that kind of loyalty just with your mind. And you can't have that kind of loyalty because you read about it and you ought to. You can only have it because you yourself know. And you can only know if you have, as Sister tells us over and over again, practice the teachings sufficiently to have found out whether they really work and then to impress upon your mind that this really works. I was talking to someone today who was telling me that they've had some you know, really true, deep experiences recently of the truth of this teaching. And immediately you watch the sort of like the slight doubt come in you know, and the sort of psychological interpretation and the this and the this. I said, why would you do that? Why don't you just take it for what it really is and just hold it in your heart for what it really means? Because we don't have, we don't have faith in ourselves. It's ourselves that we doubt, do you see? And, and it's very, very important. She writes here, you know, loyalty is the first law. To have the loyalty to the guru and the teachings it's because you've done the work, you've had the experience, and you trust yourself. And you have to work with that day after day after day. Then, when even if everything blows up in your face, you still say, like Peter said, where would I go? You know, what else could I do? I know in the middle of all the, the, the lawsuit trouble that we had, and because David and I were involved in it, we were just, it, was, it went on for months and it was awful. And I just remember saying to David at one point, you know, <laughs> thank heaven... I have a lot of experience behind me. Because if I didn't have a lot of experience behind me, I would have a very difficult time going through this. But, you know, I trust, I know what's true. And so it's not that I had doubts, don't misunderstand me. It's just that it was no fun. Just what Sister Gyanamata writes in there, I just loved that phrase. It was no fun and I really wanted to quit. It just puts it just like it is. You know, some days the spiritual path is no fun. And when when you're first on the path, I mean, it's not always that it's always easy for beginners, but it can be a lot of fun merely because it's so exciting and it's so new and it's just such a thrill often for many of us after so many years of seeking to finally be where we want to be. But then it becomes familiar and you just sort of become used to the fact that you have 150 friends and you have a wonderful spiritual family and you have a great teaching and a God-realized master and then you start beginning to notice you know that your elbow itches. And you just start really thinking about the fact that your elbow itches all the time. And you forget that you have 150 like-minded friends and a wonderful teaching and a God-realized master, and you just become so concerned about the fact that your elbow is itching, you know, because you've, it's, become, it's become normal to you, the rest of it. So we have often have to call on, on, on many aspects, and that is what happens, you know, to stay fresh on the spiritual path for decades is a real challenge. It's a huge challenge. That's one of the reasons why it's very important to serve and to serve others. Because if you can tell somebody, you know, if you're often telling other people and you see the incredible light go in their eyes, it makes you also appreciate. You know, oh my, look how special this is. And often when we communicate with people, I will say things like, think of your life without Ananda. Think of your life without the guru. So you don't forget that you're a fish swimming in water you know, what would it be like if this wasn't here? Really, if it wasn't here, if it disappeared and you had no place to go. You know, it, nothing is perfect. But uh, it's a lot better than nothing. Let me see if there's more here about the word of loyalty that I wanted to say. He, she makes another statement which I found extremely interesting. When she says, uh, when this man writes about doubt... Several people write about that. This is the same man who was writing about Clarence Darrow. She says, "Um, the proof we have to offer you, because he says to prove to me that this is true. She says, the proof we have to offer is a testimony of the great yogis of the ages. And she says, you must either accept their word or wait until death, or your own development gives you the proof that cannot be gained in any other way. And I, I, I hear how many times Swamiji Talked about when he first came to Paramhansa Yogananda, he said it was all so new to him. You know, he he just had learned. He read autobiography of a yogi and within a week. Had been initiated as a monk and a disciple, and was with was living at Mount Washington. You know, it was like seven days. He didn't even know about gurus really, or or m- most of what he was doing. And it was just as he said his head would spin. Sometimes he would literally just have to sit down (laughs) because the the transformation... He was 22 years old, you know, just everything had just turned completely upside down. He was on the other coast of the country. His parents were in Egypt, you know, and just, it was just a complete shift. Of course, it was his own, so it was also very natural. And so he, he didn't have a lot of background to sift through things that people were saying. And As you can tell from Sister Gyanamata, and when Swami tells the story too, it was not all orderly. It was very chaotic. In fact, you know, Master put Kriyananda in charge of organizing the the monastery, the monks. So a lot of people were into a lot of different things. And so people would say things to Swamiji that would sort of sound uniformly preposterous, many of them, or just incomprehensible. But he would always say, Who said it? And if Yogananda said it, he would just know it was true. He wouldn't necessarily understand it or be able to do anything with it, but he'd had the experience that what Master said was true. And that was what he was loyal to. And that's the way you balance both your um, unquestioned commitment with the necessity to use your own brain, which is what are you loyal to? You're loyal to the fact that if Master said it, it's going to be true. Um, some of you may feel, as I feel, that if Swami says it, it's probably also going to be true. But that doesn't mean that, that one mindlessly accepts that it's true. One just also can't reject it. That's the dilemma that I found over my years with Swamiji. I don't always understand it, like it, or agree with it, but I, but I can't reject it either, because I've found that that's foolish. So she says here that, part of the power of your loyalty to the teaching is that you cultivate faith in simply the fact that if the masters say it, it must be true. And that's how you, that's how you have used your own discrimination, but also to push you farther than your own experience. Do you see? And then you have then faith and loyalty. Loyalty gives you the steadfastness to gradually have experience, which gradually gives you faith. And she, and she says it very bluntly, to this man who's doubting. You're asking, you're saying, you'll be loyal to these teachings if I prove it to you in this certain way. She just says, I can't and I won't. You know, you have to, the only way that you can really follow this is either you can practice the teachings long enough that you yourself will perceive it directly. And in this case, the issue was life after death. So she spoke of, you can die and then you'll know. (laughs) Or you can take what you can figure out, which is that these great masters would not lie. And therefore, if they say it, it must be true. And you see how that, what can sound like a kind of mindlessness can actually be very well well thought out. And so a lot of times you perceive people who you think are just going along with something, but they may not really be going along with it mindlessly at all. They have just come to a certain conclusion. I know at one point, because I personally, intuitively, from the first time I met him, had a profound trust in Swami Kriyananda, which, which I've, never, I've never doubted or backed away from in all these years. And at a certain point I realized that, this was like you know my first ten years, that I gave the impression of, of, of being a little mindless in that. But, but I stood back and realized that I wasn't mindless at all, that I had very specific, definite experiences upon which I based my cooperation with him. And I had a tremendous amount of faith in those experiences and and they were the premise of being able to tolerate a lot of uncertainty. You see? So if you want to be able to be loyal to the path for your whole life, you have to build your loyalty on something that you have no doubt about. And then use that. That's what she says here. You, you can just accept that the yogis say it's true and this is how it's done. And that that's the uh, teaching that she's giving us because that whole section is really about the question of doubt. What happens when I begin to doubt? How can I be loyal to something I doubt? You have, to, you have to go back to where you really are standing. Yes, and create that doubt and, and draw a picture of a whole... Because you see, one looks at Ananda from the outside and you see a lot of people who are in agreement about many things. You, you know, And so, so you, you look at it and you, and you just say, well, they're all mindless because look, they all agree. But th- that doesn't mean that every individual person couldn't have individually come to an experience that caused them to see something true, for heaven's sakes. Things can be true in this world. But you're right. That's exa- and then you become fearful because you don't trust yourself. If you trust yourself, and no, I'm not at all mindless in this. I know exactly what I'm doing. And who are you to speak to me? Just, like, just because Clarence Darrow was famous, what does he know? You know? But you see how easily it just kind of and it's a very good example, how easily it just kind of creeps in, and all of a sudden everybody's, everybody's saying it, it's in the papers, and these people say it. And you know, a lot of times when, when accusations of ananda, I mean, the lawsuit thing was the most biggest issue, but people will come up and say, so-and-so said this, or so-and-so said that." I say, "Well, you know, who are they? And how do they know?" And look at them. Do they represent what looks to you like the apex of human development? You know, or if if you're gonna if you're gonna decide that their point of view is going to guide you, you will become like them. Do you really want to be like them? And if you do, you know, if you are attracted to whatever it is, and then follow them, you know, just go where you're inspired. That's just your choice, like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it's all been great fun, actually. <laughs> Not always in the moment, but ultimately. (laughs) I loved also this little part here. When she's saying, um, one cannot always apply the rules of the classroom to life. In the school of life, each day's work is not finished before the next task is commenced. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Meaning that just piles up on itself. And it sometimes happens, this is so dear, and it sometimes happens. That a lesson which we thought was completed and laid aside forever is presented anew to us (laughs) with unfinished work written on it by the great teacher. (laughs) It's always made me very nervous when someone said, well, I've really learned that lesson. You know, I always think, you know, don't tempt fate, be very, very careful. You can say I've made progress. I I always think of it, we tend to think, because we tend to think very linear. We tend to think, I've walked along, and now it's behind me. And, and the, the image that I've always loved is it's a spiral staircase, which it really is, and the stripes are vertical, not horizontal, and the stripes are varying widths. So you go around, and you pass it, and you think you're over, and then you go make another big loop, and maybe it gets real skinny for a couple of rounds, you know, and then all of a sudden it swells out again, and you're just going around, and you think you're not going to see that one again, and then whammo, there it is, and that's all that you're dealing with. But it's always more subtle. And that principle that she writes here leads really into the, the issue of suffering and endurance because a lot of time, as she writes later, which I'll skip to pretty soon, is uh, the mental resistance to it. This can't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. I've already learned this lesson. I don't need this anymore. Why is this going on? So I'm going to move more toward that chapter and going through also the devotion chapter a lot. I really found when I was reading the devotion chapter that it just blended into the suffering chapter. Because the devotion and loyalty are the key to how you endure. And she, she because she's Gyanamata, mata, although Master called her jnana meaning wisdom, he called her he said she she attained devotion through wisdom. You know, her attitude toward devotion is is very wisdom oriented. That's the only way I can think to put it. She she remarks in here, that by continuous, deliberate action, she cultivated devotion. And it's interesting because um, St. Teresa of Avila, who was, prob- was perhaps or probably Gyanamata in a former life, when she was forming her convents, and I mentioned this before, they were cloistered, perpetual cloisters. So once the women entered, that was it. You know, 12, 18 women, and they had to live together for the rest of their lives. So uh, Teresa said, great care must be exercised in the selection of those women. But she, she I think I told you, she, she commented about common sense being the single most important quality to look for. But the rest of that sentence was, everything else, including devotion, can be developed. And so it's it, what Gyanamata what makes clear here in this chapter on devotion, the single most important lesson, I think, from it, is the fact that you don't have to think that develop, devotion is an accident of temperament or that you just kind of have to wait until these experiences of devotion come to us. But she says, by deliberate action, I cultivated devotion to the Master. And so we have to see ourselves, we're not helpless in this. This is not passive. And then she just talks about, I could think of no, of no other way than by keeping you, meaning Master, before my mind by deliberate acts. So at seven o'clock each morning, I stopped what I was de- doing and concentrated for a moment, saying, he is praying for me. I mentally followed you around the country as you went from city to city on lecture tours. And then she says, as long as I remained in Seattle, I put a vase of orange flowers in the spot where you stood in my house. In my room, I keep the things in front of me that you gave me, ordinary things, but sacred because you gave them. Then she says... "Um, It would make this letter too long to write all the things I have done that you might be a real presence with me in my room, in my mind, and in my soul. And so, so often we'll say, oh, well, I don't feel this. I'm not having any experiences. I don't feel close. I'm not in tune with this. But what are we doing on a day-to-day basis to deliberately cultivate that? You know what pictures are around us, what music, what habits, what what keys, just like she writes. The, if I wrote everything that I was doing to make you a presence in my life, this letter would be too long. You know, just think about that. And ask ourselves, what can I do to cultivate the constant awareness? And then lo and behold, we become receptive, because loyalty and receptivity were in the first chapter. I didn't even use the word. And so now she writes. The path by which you reach me now is a well-beaten one. I no longer need external aids, but I like them just the same. And add another one to the list whenever one occurs to me. Isn't that so sweet? You know, and this woman was so powerful, and yet she was not above needing a vase of flowers sitting on the floor. Uh, You know, the words God alone on her wall. Just everything like that that cultivates this within you. So, let me, let me see what else she said. Another one here. Oh, and then this was just an extraordinary, beautiful statement of one-pointedness. She said, As the needle in the compass points ever to the north, so my heart and soul have ever pointed, without swerving, to God and Guruji, to God through Guruji. All else belongs in the same class as eating when I am hungry and going to bed when I am tired. You know Um, for 16 years I have followed you from point to point, she says until now I do not feel your absence for where you are, there I am also there was one more point about devotion that I really wanted to make where how the power of devotion carries us and the most clear and most beautiful image of it is very simply the parents with a new child with a baby child. You know, when, when a mother or a father is taking care of an infant or taking care of a child really all through their life, there is a level that appears to be sacrifice. I remember when I was 19 years old and the first person that I personally knew became a mother and she had a baby. You know, I'd known that babies existed, but this was really a friend of mine and she went from being a single woman to having, being a mother with a baby. And her baby at the time that I was with her was just at the, the toddler stage. That stage where they're just constantly in motion. She had a, a very active boy to make it more so. So our attempts to converse were just like a constant sort of moving show because she was always having to rise and chase this child and do all the things everybody knows what that particular thing is like. And I was just like watching her do this. And I finally just sort of said to her, essentially, how can you stand this? (laughs) (laughs) She sort of looked like this, and I'll never forget her answer. She said, you look at us as two separate entities. She said, "Uh, he's not separate from me. In other words, there was no part of her that felt that anything was being imposed on her. She was simply acting as herself because of her devotion to this child, her simple love for it, her devotion to the duty of it, her fully embracing of the responsibilities of it. Now, Gyanamata writes, um, ultimately the devotee does not know when he is being disciplined because all distinctions are done away with. All is one. Isn't that interesting? She talks earlier about just being so devoted to the will of God and so focused on offering everything that comes to you as if it were from God, that you no longer can think even anymore as to whether this is a kindness or a punishment. Because there's no separation between what's coming to you and you and God. All is one. Do you see, do you see how that works? The mother with the child, I looked at her and I thought, this is a problem and a burden. And And from one point of view it was because I had this thing that I thought we wanted, but she was just living in the flow of energy that her life was about. And so if we become sufficiently attentive and devoted to the constant presence of God and Guru in our lives, everything that comes to us, as she said at the very beginning, I take everything as coming from God and Guru. And how many times earlier did she say, take everything as coming from God and Guru? If everything comes from God and Guru, how can you say that this is bad and this is good? This I don't want and this I do want. If we have cultivated such attention that we, we feel this oneness. Do you see? And that's the power of devotion. Devotion is not just, oh, I feel so blissful. Oh, I feel so happy today. Oh, we had such a wonderful kirtan. Those things are absolutely marvelous and worth doing. But the real power of devotion is the capacity to be steadfast and loyal on the path and to endure. Because what are you enduring? What is there to endure in the will of God? And, and so coming into the section on suffering, it's very, very important that she's not talking about suffering. She's talking about how do you turn everything in your life into bliss. And she makes that statement, how odd it is that I had to come to a Hindu ashram to finally understand the fundamental teaching of the Bible about suffering, because what she found was that you don't suffer, but you are pushed by your suffering to overcome the ego self and go into the state of the divine self. And so that's the great um, in our festival of light every week, you know, we, we affirm this every week. Whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow were the coin of man's redemption, for us now, that payment has been exchanged for calm, acceptance, and joy. Now, someone asked a question in a different satsang that we were having about that, and the answer is worth repeating here because it it was interesting to all of us. I had never thought of it in just this way either. Many years ago, right after Swamiji published The Path, his autobiography, Twice, he did a national tour. He took a big group of people and he went from coast to coast and did many different seminars. Many people, including my beloved husband, came to Ananda because of that, that tour, so I've always had a particular warm spot for that tour. Um, but uh, and, and uh, uh, the, the subject that he lectured on time after time was what we called the practice of joy. And he um, gave talk after talk about the fact that whereas we tend to think that the goal and the reward of the spiritual path is the experience of joy, in fact, the path itself is the deliberate, continuous practice of joy. In the face of whatever comes, we practice joy. That's how we meet it. Whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow were what we had to exchange for salvation, now that has been uh, exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. And what that implies is not, oh, we used to suffer and now we're always happy. It's that whereas in the past, the thought was that you pleased God by suffering. Jesus suffered, therefore I suffer. Now the practice that we're being asked to do is to calmly accept what comes and practice joy in the face of it. You see? And that's what, exactly what she writes in here when she writes that i understood suddenly how the two come together that unless we we're, we're, we're pushed we become spiritual cream puffs we're only spiritual cream puffs as she said and she also says that i always thought that i mean that that bliss and meditation and great experiences in meditation are not enough your spiritual attainments are tested in the cold light of day. These are famous Gyanamata phrases that we say to each other, in the cold light of day, how much you can endure. You know, and endurance has never been my favorite word, ever. But I must say, I grew to like it from this. In fact, um, I'm looking at Sharon because she and I were laughing about this and comparing the fact that we have the same temperaments in this respect. I've developed an enormous amount of creativity because I don't like to endure. So when things don't please me, I'm very good at finding an alternative, you know. And I don't necessarily mean I don't face it, but I don't like to endure, so I like to create another solution instead of just having to sit here and go through this. But I'm, I'm, I'm more attracted to it after reading what she said. Because there's another law here, another um, very important principle that's being expressed through this whole chapter and, and through the key phrases that she's saying. Many of you have been in other classes when we've talked about karma, and the basic evolution of the soul through what they call in India the four casts. I, I I'm only going to say it very briefly for, the, for those of you who don't know it, that you know the, the, least, the lowest level of, of development of people in human bodies, souls in human bodies, is what they call the peasant consciousness, where you're just dull and uncreative. Then you begin to get a little bit of interested in in the relationship between how much energy I put out and what I can get for myself. And then you gradually evolve into what we call the Vaisha class, the merchant class. Vaisha is a very good word for it, which means that you're really willing to work as long as there's some kind of an exchange. That's what the concept of a merchant. You know, I'll give you a good product if you give me a fair price. And so we're very energetic as long as there's a fair exchange, right? But, and and uh, you reach a certain point, like the, the, the lowest level of, when you're in the peasant level, the shudra level, your relationships are all about what you can get from people. When you reach the vaisya level in your relationships with people, you're willing to trade. The vaisya level, you make the list of the household chores and how long each one takes. And if he'll do this, then I'll do this. And if he'll do this, then I'll do that. You know, and if he'll do this, then I'll do that. And it's all like, I'm more than willing to give as long as it's fair. And there's a whole lot of talk about fairness all the time. And, you know, that's like progress in our culture now that we all talk we always talk about fairness and we're always negotiating our relationships, but it's just a visha consciousness. Because finally we recognize that I don't really just want to do things for what I get back, that the real joy is in giving. And even more than that, the real joy is in understanding what the right principles are and having the courage and the determination and the honor within myself simply to live by them. You know, maybe I won't get as rich as the next guy, but I have the satisfaction of living by truth. And this becomes what's called the Kshatriya level, the level of of the soldier or the noble servant, the, the noble public servant who does it because it's right to do. Okay, and then the highest level is the Brahmin, the priest, who is surrendered to the spirit. Now, what this issue of suffering is about is the transition between Vaisha and Kshatriya, which is where it's a very, very important transition in spiritual life because, you see, a lot of us get on the spiritual life deliberately or otherwise, consciously or otherwise, because in some way we're going to strike a deal with God, right? I've suffered a lot. Things haven't gone so well. Now I'm into this teaching which promises me a lot of bliss. Okay, so I'm going to do this meditation... And then I'm going to feel a lot better, right? You know? That's what the yogis have promised, after all. You know, this is a teaching about joy. And so we, you know, we hack away at it for a while. And then, you know, maybe we have a few good years. And then it's not so much fun anymore. And we have to come to the inner realization why am I doing this? And and when you have this picture of the Vaishya Kshatriya progression, you, you, you're not really a devotee if you're just a Vaishya. If you're just doing it for what you're going to get out of it. And you see, that's a little hard to get at first because you think, of course I'm doing it for what I can get out of it. And yes, but you're really doing it because it's right. You're really doing it because where else could I go? And your loyalty is to just the fact that this is the truth of life and this is what I'm going to do. I remember... The night I became a devotee, and I believe I was 18 and a half or 19 years old, and I remember lying awake all night, at least that's how it felt, whether I actually did or not, I don't know, just trying to think if there was any way to get out of this. You know, if there was just any way that I could avoid having to do the right thing and just really face into the path of self-realization. And I tried, you know, just experimenting with the expansion of my mind to just think if there was any way I could cheat and just get it without doing it. And I, I really came to the conclusion that you're always going to be conscious and you're always going to be yourself and you, all you're ever going to have is your consciousness and you just might as well just get to work. You know? So once you really understand and you begin to become a Kshatriya, then you can start becoming a Brahmin. But as long as you're a Vaisha and as long as you're a Vaishya, when God sends you things, you know full well that you're being disciplined because you have this sense of this is not in my bargain. And we have written these contracts, big contracts, you know how, how legal things are, we put on our little half glasses and we write them, and we type them pages and pages and pages and pages. and We sign them and we witness them and we date them, you know, and we hold them like this, like this is what's supposed to happen. But there's no other signature on that but ours. <laughs> You I mean, there's no divine stamp. There's no, like, God, you know, beginning of time on it at all. But we spend a huge amount of energy feeling outraged because that contract has been violated. And she herself says in here, you know, a great deal of suffering is just the orientation of the mind toward it. It's not really suffering if, there's, if the orientation is not that I'm suffering. That's why also, whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow was what we did, calm acceptance... And that's part of the practice of joy, is just calm acceptance. This is happening to me, therefore it must be absolutely right. And I've, I've really enjoyed over the years just playing with my sense of outrage. I remember my, my favorite actual karmic experience, this was one of my favorites, was when certain people got real mad at me for something I did not do. I was utterly innocent, in fact. I could have done it. <laughs> I was perfectly capable of doing what I was accused of doing. I just had, didn't happen to have done it. So whereas their accusation was false and unfair, it was totally true. You know, And I just figured I must have just gotten away with it before. You know There must have been lifetimes in which nobody noticed, and I just sailed through. So now it's a quote, "false accusation, but it's a true one. It's just all-balancing. You know, nothing can happen to you. That isn't a perfect balance. It's, it can't happen to you unless it's a perfect balance. And, and if we can just accept the, the necessity and the positiveness, and if we can even become so one with the divine that we don't even know we're being injured, then endurance is not nearly such a challenge. I mean, yes, many things are not fun. And Sister Gyanamata, you know, spent 20 years and she writes, I no longer can wake up even feeling comfortable. You know, she was talking about some very impressive experiences and she talks about more of them as the book goes on. So, you know, there's levels of challenge that are profound, but there's so much left less if we take them with calm acceptance and even less if we take them as a gift from God. Now, let's take a break and then we can go on. We were having, I, I love to make references to the um, Festival of Light because it's one of the unique contributions that Swami Kriyananda has made you know to the liturgy well he's made a, what do i mean one of the unique he's made millions of unique contributions but it's really a central contribution he's made to the worship and to the spiritual practice of ananda and it's very subtle and not obvious and not everyone you know is put many people put out the energy to tune into it but it always um, i think it's always beneficial to point out the deeper meaning of it because that gives us all more relationship to it so um, there, was a, there was a line in here that, just, that I made a note about. I just wanted to find it now again. Um, let me see what it is. Oh, she talks about certain tests being an experience of darkness and how um, they're just places that we go that we don't know where we're going or how we're ever going to come out of them again. And, and, and again... I'm emphasizing one of the very important keys that she puts through this all through it is that we have we have two levels to everything that happens to us. On one level you have the actual circumstances that you may have attracted to yourself. You know, whether they be the animosity of people that you, you know, were formerly close to, whether it's the loss through death or other separation of, of things that were important to you whether it's the diminution of your own health, you know, physical pain, all these different things that happen to us. We have external conditions that are our experience. And then we have the attitude of mind toward those conditions. And she makes a great point of it. You cannot really prevent, at this point in our spiritual development, the inevitable expression of whatever your karma is. You know, we have many past lives. We've set a tremendous amount of energy in motion. We've worked very hard to reach this stage of delusion. You know? <laughs> and and I, I just have a tremendous respect for karma. And I always say to people, I think you might not like your what comes to you, but you have to respect it. I mean, you, you, you devoted a lot of energy to creating it. So you can't just kind of be annoyed and ask it to go away. It won't go away. It's a, it's a strong fighter, and, and if you're in the ring with it, you have to be equally strong. You can't just wish it out of your life. Partly, I was saying earlier, it fits you perfectly. You wouldn't have it unless it fit you perfectly. I, I was realizing that because I was feeling very uncomfortable about some people who were close to me and the things that they were having to go through. And I realized it was partly because what they were going through would be so unnatural for me to go through, because my karma takes me somewhere else. And other people have expressed, you know, the same kind of uh, disbelief about some of the things that I go through. And I sort of look at them and I think, but this is mine. You know, it fits me. I'm comfortable here. I might not like it, but it's not alien. You understand? So what happens to us is is definitely ours. And but the second level of difficulty is the attitude of the mind we take toward it. So you can't necessarily change the circumstances, but you can, just as Gyanamata said, change no circumstance of my life, change me. And what she really meant was change the attitude I hold toward these experiences, because you can vastly mitigate the karma. Vastly mitigate it. That's why Jesus said, if they slap you on one cheek, then turn to them the other. I think I spoke about this earlier. That's a way of saying, whatever comes to me, I not merely... I merely, I not only do I not resist it or resent it or say it shouldn't happen, but I actually step forward and embrace it. And there's that just extraordinary moment in the life of Christ when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came to arrest him and Judas and the cohort came to arrest him. And they came and, and there was all this like confusion because they were, Judas was about to do this terrible thing and the Roman soldiers were about to put their hands on this, in this avatar, and there was some instinctive sense of hesitation. And Jesus said, Who are you seeking? I am, the, I am the one you are seeking. And they say, And Jesus stepped forward. And the power of his stepping forward caused the soldiers to fall over backwards. You know? But it wasn't... It wasn't it was, there were many things, but the, not the least of which was, You have come to arrest, torture, and crucify me here I am. Right? Like that. Now, one of the reasons, among many reasons, why Jesus didn't suffer in the way that we project upon him that he suffered is because he went like that. Because he just said, this is mine. I embrace this. And he says, Lord, as she quotes several times in here, Jesus says, Lord, save me from this hour. But then he says, ah, but for this hour was I born. And, that's, and she, she draws the example from that that is a, such a perfect one. So is true of every single moment, of every, every time that you're in a situation where you wish you weren't and you're using a tremendous amount of your energy wishing that something else was happening to you. And you're not even using your energy. We're not even using our energy to deal with what's happening to us. We're using all our energy to wish it wasn't happening to us. Then we say, but ah, for this hour was I born. And yes, it may be a humiliating moment to think that the fruit of all my incarnations is oh, this, but if it is, it is, right? <laughs> and more than that. I think the announcement is cars out in front of the lights on. A gold-colored Toyota Corolla has the lights on. Does anybody? Pardon me?
1: Yes. <laughs> Okay,
0: know what none of us? Okay, Stop at the end of the street. okay. nice try. Um, but uh, uh, whatever, okay, there it was, whatever it was, what I was saying. Calm acceptance and joy. There, that's what I was trying to get back to. But I was trying to say here also, one of the things that often causes us a great deal of suffering is the sense that we feel that we're entering into a dark place. And she, you know, darkness and light, of course, are such profound spiritual images. We use them all the time. The dark night of the soul. And she, um, the darkness of a test is what she referred, she writes here, to the darkness of this test. Um, And uh, if I must dwell in the darkness, it may be that divine darkness which God has made his secret place, she writes. But I always, every time I read about the the fear of entering into this darkness. And she talks about how Saint Teresa of Avila used to meditate on the fact that many of the Desert Fathers who were hermits lived years, and she uses the Catholic phrase, without any consolation. With meaning without having any real experiences that, that made them blissful. They just had to do it because it was there to do. And we don't know if that darkness will ever end. We don't know if the suffering will ever end. I remember once just sort of saying something to Swami, like, it would be easier to handle this if I knew that it would end. And he just sort of, he said nothing, because there was absolutely nothing to say. It's just like, oh, sure, everything would be easier if it were different. I mean, what are you asking? (laughs) But in the festival of light, night fell, and the little bird grew afraid. And he says the question, how can I fly in this darkness? Because, okay, right, I can handle this as long as I know where I am and I can see where I'm going and as long as my mind understands and as long as all my conditions are met. Right, Lord? I'm a Vaisha. I do my part, you do yours. And then all of a sudden you've changed the rules on me. It's gotten dark. Okay? We were were getting along fine. Now it's dark. How can I fly in this darkness? And then the night whispers. The darkness itself says, peace awaits you in the unknown. And every time I read that, you know, which I often do, I sort of want to stop and say, did you hear that? (laughs) Because so often in our lives, we're spending all our energy wishing that we knew what was going to happen next. Because we're certain that we can't fly because it's dark and we can't see. And what does the night say to us? Surrender to me. It doesn't say, oh, I'll show you. Here, let me shine a flashlight. Here's the map. You know, here's the magnifying glass. This is, we're taking this route and it will lead to this. You know, God isn't, there's no contract. We just have to keep flying, dark or not. Surrender to it. But we're linked to our fate. We're linked to God's will. If we resist it constantly, there's so much more suffering than if you just flow with it. So ask yourself always, where, where is the difficulty of endurance? It may be, Truly that this is a horrible experience. Recently, I was talking to Swamiji about a horrible experience I was going through, and his only consolation is, well, sometimes awful things happen and we just have to live through them, you know? (laughs) And, well, yeah. So, that actually helped a lot, because I just said, what am I making such a big deal about this? This is nothing but an awful experience. You know, really, it's just an awful experience. I remember Swamiji also saying once to a man whose life was, his life was, well, we used to give awards every year at Ananda Village, and we, somebody would always get the most dramatic Karma of the Year award. <laughs> 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 well, this man was going to win it for about six years running. And Swami just looked at him so sweetly one day, he says, Golly, he said, Karma ends, you know? <laughs> When? Who knows? But he just said, karma ends. Nothing lasts forever. And sometimes it was just, just what you have to say. Nothing lasts forever. Um, there was another, I mean, there's a lot, there's so many good points, but there's another really important point that was right on the first pages of this, when she was talking about physical health and how to deal with physical illnesses, because she had so much of that. Now, to be fair, when I speak to you, I've been very blessed with very good health. So I'm not, I don't have a lot of first-hand experience. Please, God, don't think that I need it, of, uh, of actually enduring that. So I can't speak with the kind of authority that I can speak from some things. But she, she makes a point here that's very interesting to me. When she says, if you want to be well, start now in a firm health with all your heart. And then she tells you how to do it. Now you don't just affirm health by saying, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I am well, I am well, you know, I do have two legs even though one of them has been amputated. You know, if if things are, are a certain way, that's the way they are. And Sister Gyanamata herself says she had to recognize that as she became ill, she had to live differently. You don't affirm health necessarily by living as if it doesn't exist. I mean, your ill health, because if, if she says it's careless, if you don't being concerned about the body is not the same as not taking care of it. She made that distinction earlier, remember? And she talked about, as she w- and they, they talked about her saying, as she became old and ill and couldn't do the same things anymore, there was no sign that she resisted that. She just saw her limitations and went into them. But she says, still, affirm health with all your heart. And then she says, count your gains and blessings and skip the rest. And so often we have to understand that to affirm something is merely to accentuate the positive. You know, because to, to, uh, to affirm illness is to always be concentrating on limitation and lack. To affirm health is to always be concentrating on that which is positive. Count your gains, count your blessings. Today was, you know, today I had all these wonderful things happen to me today. And so the, orient, the affirmative orientation is by what you concentrate on. Not by what you sort of pretend isn't there, or 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 naively just sort of acting as if you had a strength to change conditions that you can't change. Do you understand the difference? And then, because she says, then she refers to the law of attraction. Because if you're constantly constantly focusing on what you lack, what did Jesus say in the Bible? To those who have more shall be given. To those who have not even the little they have shall be taken away from them. And that's just, oh, that just seems so unfair when you read that. But he's talking about the law of magnetism. Like attracts like. If you're constantly focused on the fact that I feel worse today, my arm is more paralyzed today than it was before, I had more pains, I got less sleep, You know, and you're thinking like that, then your consciousness is always, you're always affirming your, your state of lack. And the law of attraction will mean that you'll gradually lack more and more. If instead you count your gains and blessings, and of course that requires a creative mind sometimes to always be looking for something positive, the law of attraction will do the rest, which is that you'll just keep experiencing more and more of what you're concentrating on. Does that mean your body will get well? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. You know, Gyanamata's body didn't get well, but it didn't make any difference. Because what she was focused on, she became more and more of. And that very orientation allowed her, as she described it, to be able to just put the body aside and go into the spirit when she needed to. And she herself says, you know, later in here, suffering has never been that difficult for me because she learned how to genuinely overcome it and not merely hide from it. Does that make sense? So let me, there was one more thing I think I wanted to say. The Bible says that God never puts on us a burden above what we are able to bear, that there is always a way of escape. In other words, there is some way concealed, but not beyond our powers of discovery. I love that little phrase. Concealed, but not beyond our powers of discovery, of escaping by rising into a clear, pure atmosphere that lies above the plane of stress and strain. And that's just such a powerful statement. God will never give you something more than you can endure, and there's always a way out of it, concealed but not beyond your powers to discover. You know, just the other morning, just, as a, just to give you an exercise, I just woke up with a terrible sense of anxiety about the circumstances. Many of you know I've been going to Southern California every week to work with my aging parents. And I just woke up one morning with this incredible sense of anxiety that I could just hardly bear. And I just, I just had to sit there in this, and, and, and with, with the thoughts of what's written right here, it, it, it is not necessary for me to feel like this, you know, the circumstances I can't change, but it isn't necessary for me to respond with this kind of anxiety. And so I just kept looking at, you know, asking myself more and more deeply, what is it that I am concerned about? what is it that I'm concerned about? What is it I'm concerned about? I have to, I guess I just have to finish the story, but I finally realized that what I was concerned about was the fact that on one hand, I, I love Christmas here. And I also have a lot of responsibility. I have to carry out a lot of things here for Christmas that are important to a lot of people. And at the same time, I have this tremendous sudden responsibility to move my parents and all of these things that's happening right at the same time. And my fear was that I wouldn't be able to do both, you know? And it wasn't really, again, it wasn't the circumstances, it was my fear about the circumstances. You see how different that is? Because I couldn't change the circumstances, but I said to Divine Mother, look, you know, you, you, you set me up, and it, seem, it seems to me that it would be unwise to have these things cancel each other out. It seems like that wouldn't be a good idea, but there you are, it's yours. And really, as soon as I just got that, I was fine. I'm not having a lot of fun, but that's a different question. At least that was gone. It's all in the attitude of the mind, you see. Not one single iota of my circumstances shifted, but my orientation toward it shifted. And you call on everything that you have. You call on all the experience you have. You call on your faith in the masters. You call on your common sense. You call on your willpower, everything, and then you just turn it. And you can do that over and over and over again. Every time, you don't have to be that way. Suffering and sorrow is the past. Now it's calm, acceptance, joy, and faith in God. And that's the cold light of day. That's what God has given to us. So you're not having great meditations. I laughed with a friend of mine once. She was really being awful. Just really awful. This was years ago. Just terrible, day after day. Finally, I was appointed to sort of see if anything could be done about her ghastly mood. And uh, we were walking together and she sort of, you know, after a while she began to confess that, well, the reason she was in such a bad mood is because her meditations were going so terribly. And I began to laugh. I said, you know, when my meditations go really badly, I figure I've got to make it up somewhere. So I try to be real, real nice. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's just, you know, same circumstance, you just flip it. I at least better be good to people or, you know, I have to have something good going on. There's never any justification. And if, if you ever think you're justified, Satan has a hold of you. And, and another conversation I was having today, which I want to emphasize, Darwin told us that we all evolved from the monkeys. And Darwin was wrong, but that's what he said. And a great deal of modern psychology and Freud, believe it or not, in much, most of Christianity, is all actually based on Darwin. The people who hate Darwin the most are the ones who are the most committed to him. Because they also think that we're inherently sinful and that our condition is suffering. And psychology teaches us a lot that if you're too happy, you must be in some state of denial. You know? That, I mean, now, now we can all laugh at that, but that thought influences us an enormous amount. And that we have this sort of almost, it's almost become like we're a little nervous about getting too happy for fear we're not actually dealing with someone, with something that we need to deal with. But, but it's not true. We come from the divine, and that's our true nature. And anything that makes you feel justified in being sad or angry, that's your enemy. And you don't have to deal with it. You just have to get past it. You just have to rise above to the point where you're in the clear atmosphere of spirit again. Now, of course, common sense. Sometimes in order to do that, you have to unravel the knots. If you do not understand yourself, And if you constantly surprise yourself and do things you cannot comprehend, you may have to spend a little bit of time trying to figure out what the heck you're doing. Why do I always react this way? But once you get a basic understanding, and I was saying to someone this morning, a lot of process is actually a desperate hope that I can process my way out of this and will never actually have to exert my willpower. You know, that that a certain point will come in which I have to draw a line in the sand, and I have to endure, and I have to say no to something I want, and embrace something that I'm going toward. And we hope that we can just keep going in circles. We will come up with a different answer. I remember that in the context that I've shared with you when I knew very well what God wanted, I just didn't want to do it. So I spent a lot of time agonizing about how come I didn't know what God wanted. And finally, I had to face the fact that I knew perfectly well. It's just as long as I stay confused, I didn't have to do it. Because I didn't want to do it. It's real simple. She says something about that in here. Let me see if I can find it. Where was it? Oh, yes. We must learn that sacrifice means going without something that we would like to have, either for the sake of a person or for a cause. That renunciation means the giving up of some pure pleasure or right for the sake of a higher good that we perceive before us. And then she says, possibly in some far distant future incarnation. We're not doing this because we're Vaishas. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. We must aspire not only to stand behind the Master on the Mount of Transfiguration and share the bliss of God consciousness, but we must aspire also with equal ardor to aid him in bearing the cross of Calvary. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to do that because we want to suffer, but that's how you get from one to the next. And sooner or later, we just have to sacrifice and we have to renounce. And if we can just try to get to that more quickly, you know, renounce your fear, renounce your bad feeling, renounce your anxiety, renounce your lack of faith. That's what you're really renouncing. I remember saying to someone was having a lot of difficulty recently, I said, the terrible, terrible thing that you're just going to have to face is that God loves you. You know? Just what an awful thing to have to look at. But really, that is a lot of times what it is. Oh, I'm so terrible. I'm so unworthy. I just can't really do it. I always fail. I'm never going to make it spiritually. Nothing is going right for me. And the really awful truth is that you're a child of God. Isn't that funny? But that really is a lot of what we spend our energy doing. But, but it takes a surprising amount of energy. You, would, you wouldn't think it would. But because, as Shiva says in here, the little self has the, has the big self by the throat, has a stranglehold. And unless we're really pushed, we, we don't have the power to overcome that. And that's the game. That's the way the game is played. And so you ask yourself, I remember Swamiji standing in front of us in the midst of that horrible lawsuit situation and said, I thought I had done enough merely by accepting this test," he said. I mean, he said this in this congregation to the whole place. He said, I I thought I had done enough because I had accepted it. He said, I realized that I have to love the experience. I mean, it was a terrible experience he was having. He said, I have to love it because it's from God to free me. He said, why would I not love it? Isn't that just a wonderful way to think about it? The devotee, by devotion, reaches the point where he can no longer tell whether he's being disciplined or not. He can't tell because it's all one. So when you yourself, we, we ourselves are going through really hard experiences, awful experiences, why is this awful? God has sent it to me to make me free. Why would I think this is awful? Just a habit of the mind that says that this is pleasurable, this is not. And Swamiji, I remember him joking once sitting with us, he said, you know... I really ought, I mean, you, my wonderful friends, he said, are just using up my good karma, where these awful people are helping me use up my bad karma. They're really doing, <laughs> they're really doing me a much greater favor than you are. <laughs> it's a mind game, but it's not, it's not untrue. You know? Isn't it fun? You just turn the mind. Play with it. Just turn the mind. When it's not hard, constantly turn the mind, so that when it's very hard, you'll be in the habit of being able to turn the mind. Well, I'm not sure I have anything else to say. Is there any any comments or thoughts to talk about tonight? In this she was just so strong about that. Oh, she didn't want to protect her ego. She wanted to. There didn't. She didn't want there to be any shred of egoic self between her and the master. And she was afraid that he, that some aberration of her lesser nature had influenced her relationship with him. And she wanted to push that aside. That's what she was renouncing. Oh yeah, it's very personal. it came to very personal. How do you think that kinda corresponds to No, it's not personal it's not personal, Jillian, because personal personal I mean in, in the truest sense, personal relates to the ego self. That which overcomes the ego makes you by definition impersonal. And the relationship with the master is intimate, it's not personal. Because it's it's divi- the divine to divine. There's no person to be engaged in it. And she just didn't want any of her personal self. That's why she would leave the room when he came in. She didn't want any of her little self asking for anything. She only wanted the divine self. But when you're there, it's very intimate. It's a romance. And so we, we mustn't think that it's cold. See, impersonal's a very important word because impersonal means based on principle, not based on self. And so which, her relationship with Master was completely impersonal and therefore there was nothing to keep them separate because there was, there was no conflicting self to keep it separate. People think impersonal means cold. It doesn't mean cold at all. I objected to Swami using the word impersonal when he would talk about marriage. I said, sir, it's a terrible word. Nobody understands it. Everybody hates it when you say that. They just don't get it at all. Just looked, you know, listened attentively, and then the next night went forward and spoke in exactly the same way. So I figured I had to learn from him. And I just really gradually tuned in to, oh, we're always like this, about what about me, what about me, what about me? And she was, let us repudiate the whole concept of me so that I can be the infinite. And then there's no separation. And then they played the lila, the little game of Gyanamata and Yogananda. Just like Master played the game with Rajasi and he writes, you know, you and I will never be Yogananda and Rajasi again. Let us enjoy this. We'll never be Gyanamata and Yogananda again. Let us enjoy this with such completely uninhibited sweetness and freedom and closeness. And it's the perfect romance. It's the romance that all of us long for but it's the only one that really satisfies because it's the infinite to the infinite. Yeah. The Festival of Life? Yeah. Little Bird says, How can I fly in this darkness? And the knight answered, Peace awaits you in the unknown. Surrender to me and your strength will be renewed. What are you surrendering to? You're surrendering to the fact that as my consciousness is in this moment, I don't always understand everything. And I can put my hand in God's hands, I can grab the Yogananda's robe and not unclench my hands, and go forward whether I'm afraid or not. And I don't have to be satisfied in all my little small ways. I can just move into a new state of consciousness and it'll be okay. I was just talking during the break, you know, someone about just... Sometimes experiences in meditation even frighten us. I remember when Swami, I told Swami about something that happened and how I sort of, you know, came like this. And he said, don't be afraid. It was just a meditative experience. Don't be afraid. Immediately defended myself. I'm not afraid, I said like that. But I said it like this. I'm not afraid! And so (laughs) I thought, hmm, that doesn't sound like a person who's not afraid. And then I realized I was afraid. Because this might not feel very good, but at least I know what it is. I know how it works. And I think moving into the darkness is like the first time I went to Europe, after David and I got married, and we were in Greece, just the two of us by ourselves, we didn't speak a word of Greek. I was very nervous. A lot of the time I was there. Not because anything was threatening me, but because I just didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going to happen. Now I've traveled you know, a great deal, and I go many places where I don't know what's happening, and I feel perfectly relaxed because it's become familiar. But then it was very, it was, there was no threat, but I was still nervous. So it is, we're very comfortable with this. We know how it functions. And all of a sudden, our little system, it goes dark. I mean, it's a, it's a symbolic thing. It goes dark. We can no longer run our little system. And yet we're being propelled still. Well, how can I fly when I can't run my system? How can I live when, my little, when the whole thing changes? Aren't I going to crash? Aren't I going to fall to pieces? How is this going to happen? And then the, the night says... Because the knight is conscious, because it's God himself who's drawing us to a higher level. It's very peaceful here. Just surrender to this. You'll find instead of being anxious, you'll feel this deep peace. Because acting with faith and trusting something bigger than ourselves also brings us peace, inherently. And after a time, I love that, after a time, the tiny rebel surrendered. Ah, oh, and he found the knight's counsel true. You know, it worked. But after a time, you know, because you can kind of see him, like that for a while. I can't, I can't, I can't. Pardon me? Trying to control the situation. I want it to be light. I want it to be my way. I have a contract. This is the way it's supposed to be. Peace awaits you in the unknown. We're always having to move to the unknown. I mean, if this isn't it, if this isn't full self realization, then by definition, we're going to have to go someplace we've never been before. And there's going to be moments of transition. So if we can again get the picture, peace awaits us in the unknown, surrender to me and your strength will be renewed. And after a time he tried it and found it true. That's why week after week after week we say this. So that like in our moment it'll occur to us, oh I see what's happening. Suddenly it's gone dark. I don't know where I'm going or how I'm going to get there. But if I surrender to this, the peace will be there and I'll be strong again. Does that make sense? It's not easy. It's a lifetime, but nor is it complicated. It's just not easy. Big difference. You know, this morning, or y- yesterday or last week, when I was you know, so anxious, it was like, I, I don't know how this is going to happen and I can't control it. I'm not going to be able to control this situation. I'm here. I'm this. All this, I have to do all this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I was going into the dark. And then I had to say, wait a minute. Master's in charge of this. You know, I'm not wanting something that's not good. I, I mean, my anxiety is that I won't be able to do the good things that, that God wants me to do. Come on, honey. I mean, like, get, get it together. God's in charge. It's okay. And so I'm still in the unknown. I don't know where it's going. But now I'm not so anxious. Because, you know, I've been there before. I've surrendered many times, and it's fine once I do. Or at least it's not so terrible. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts or questions? Yes, Cyrus. She describes Satan as the independent cosmic vibration, which I, I thought was an intriguing phrase. Yeah, she has beautiful phrases, doesn't she? So thinking of your school analogy also in the last class. Yeah. So sort of going off into so the idea that we can be independent doesn't think ourselves independent of our karma. Yeah, the Satan is just the force that moves you away from the spirit instead of works in cooperation with it. Yeah, we did a lot of that in the last class. I think that we may be done. <laughs> All right, God bless you. Next week is our last class. You have a hundred pages to read, but if you read, I, I, we'll probably concentrate more on um, the last sections just because. It seems like there's more to work with. But, you know, if you read it all, I'll read it all. Everybody will read it all. We can come from wherever it's important. Okay. Thank you.